Do you know, you're not the first person to say that. Someone, we do a Zoom uh, after church coffee at our church and someone said, where does that door go? And I said, I'm really sorry, it is a cupboard. Welcome to Faith with Haith. I'm Jamie Haith, the Reverend Jamie Haith, speaking to you from central London. And a few miles down the road is today's guest. She is uh, a friend of mine. She's been a friend for a long time. She's awesome. And her name is Rachel Griffiths. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Jamie. What's the weather like where you are? The weather where I am in South East London is lovely. Bright sunshine. Perfect. You're in Herne Herne Hill. Yeah, SE24, um, nestled between Brixton and... I suppose Dulwich, so depending on how posh you're feeling or you want people to think you are, you, you <laughs> mentioned Dulwich and if you want to feel kind of gritty and a bit cooler, uh, you say Brixton, but I, it's best just to say Herne Hill. Now you uh, have told me that you've already been on a long run this morning. Yes, thank you for bringing that in. Well That's done. all good for profile. Cheeky 10k, I just a cheeky 10k this morning. And which then you came I, back and you had a double yeah. bacon sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, all of the sauces and, um, and a, a side pudding. of a lard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do love all that sort of stuff. I can't lie. But no, um, actually, I've got a bowl of uh, muesli here and I haven't eaten it. And so, and nor, nor can I now, can I? Well, you can. So, um, I'm sure, I'm no, that's sure not our be listeners nice. will love to yeah. hear mm-hmm. the sound. An immersive podcast with Rachel that. Griffiths eating her breakfast. That's a little bit too authentic. Um, yeah, so no, I'm, I've got my coffee. <laughs> So you, uh, I was, the, the idea of, of Faith with Faith, as you know, is uh, that I would interview people from all walks of life and mm-hmm. uh, some of them do extraordinary jobs that everyone's heard of and others are more normal. You're one of the normal <laughs> ones. <laughs> Why, think, thank you. <laughs> I don't think you've ever been called that before in the <laughs> That's world. It's not a word that people usually throw at me. <laughs> but the idea is that we look at life through the lens of faith and um, with, with people that are just everyday people like you and me. Yeah, and, and good, I, and I'm good. About it because, because I think so often faith becomes uh, just not part of the conversation. And that's mm-hmm. all I'm saying with, with these is that talk, talk about faith, talk about God. Is there such a thing as a spiritual dimension to life? But anyway, mm-hmm. talking of other dimensions, I want to start somewhere else because Everyone knows you by a slightly different name than Rachel. There's Rachel, there's Rach, but also people who you Ray, which yeah. the modern Star Wars generation is mm-hmm. a very cool thing to be called. Yeah, I wanted to be their role model. Are you as cool um, as Ray from Star Wars? Well, obviously, I'm, I can't possibly answer that question. Well, I I, no, you know what? Very few people call me Rach. And if they do, I find it very tender. I'm like, oh, you've sort of chosen to call me Rach. That's very lovely. But Ray, I think it must have started, yeah, when I was a kind of probably a teenager, I think. It wasn't like my kiddie name, as it were. Uh, so Ray, yeah. That's who I am. I quite like it if people start with Rachel and then as they get to know me more, they morph into Ray. I feel like it's a sort of rite of passage, but I have noticed people call me Ray from the off. And then your husband, Andy Griffiths, Grifter, he just calls you... Um, I I haven't... Well, is that appropriate for this sort of conversation? Well, he knows you so well. No, I don't know what I mean (laughs) is he just calls you... Anyway, let's move on. So you were born in Watford. Uh, yes, and, uh, that's how you grew up being called Ray. Yeah, I know you're a lifelong Watford supporter, aren't you? Honestly, listen, the, that is a journey 
um, and it's one that few few will understand. It's painful and it's beautiful. And I was um, more probably my, more in the beauty, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, but that's like the mystery of life is enfolded in Watford Football Club. I'm the I'm 52, so I am the age when it was full on Graham Taylor, fourth division, um, climbing up through the ranks. Everyone just thought we would know what nobody and no one team you know one horse team and then suddenly you end up in the first division which no one will have heard of but is actually what would have been the premiership and um and my dad and you know used to take we would go to sort of Wolverhampton from Dorset where we'd moved to uh me with my hand made knitted Watford gloves and a hot water bottle up my jumper and a flask of tea and dad going to see really probably quite bad <laughs> football matches but I love you, you I must love be celebrating football. you're celebrating the lockdown aren't you because I'm right in thinking, I think that Watford, they're not in the relegation zone, but they might we're as well. They're not. They're so What quiet. do you mean they might as well be? We're just 17th. not. I mean, I'm a Chelsea, <laughs> yeah, I'm a Chelsea not. fan. I think, I think we've got well, like twice as many uh, points as you. Um, but I don't really find that you're going to have anything to teach me as a Chelsea fan, so let's just leave that right there. Should we probably move on <clears> from the footy? You were, uh, Should raised, we move on from the footy? Yeah, let's move on, move on from the footy. Raised in Dorset. Uh, finally got to London, age 18. What was that? Mm-hmm. Were you just like, yay! Yeah, I knew from, I guess, because being born in Watford, um, and we moved away when I was three, but um, obviously, our, you know, my mum and dad's sort of spiritual home and all their friends were there, so we would visit, and both their sets of family were there. We would go and visit in some holidays go at Christmas, and uh, it was big. Part, you know, so I think there's something urban, uh, that was always in me. And I knew as a kid that I needed to get to London as soon as I possibly could. And that was, that was the game plan. Um, grew up in Wimborne in Dorset, which is very, very nice. Great mates. Um, had, you know, a nice time, enjoyed school and all of that kind of stuff. But are I just, my mum describes me. Are, are you quite posh? Well, um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't born posh. <laughs> and I think by virtue of, Probably, I mean, we'll get onto it, but, you know, you just meeting people from all different walks of life and working. And I think I've done probably that shallow thing of going, oh, posh people get on. And so I'm quite good at accents. And I think I started to speak like people around me. And I, I guess um, at university, I suddenly realized there's lots of people who've been to private school. And uh, so, no, I know people think I'm posh. And I, I probably, I know, oh, I actually hate talking about this because there's no way of sounding anything other than a complete idiot but um should we move on I, like we, we just not do class i'm just yeah, we won't do class. i'm just, well, what, just who i am to, i'm who i am you are ray you are yes or, or, um okay so you what did you study at uni i studied french and theater and you actually did french theater yes and then after university i went to uh, drama school in paris so i really really did French theatre um and it was I mean it was just the dream subjects for me really because I just loved French it was always sort of weirdly second nature to me um and in studying so, French that's, that's I, amazing so you so you you learn a play in French and perform it in France I know this sounds really <laughs> stupid <laughs> that's well, that, a really yes. stupid thing to say <laughs> but I, I mean learning lines I love acting but I've never been yeah. learning lines but yeah. to have to learn lines in French. Yeah, it's good. Is it? Um, I'll do some now. If you can sp- 
qu'est-ce que tu veux que je dise euh, wow. Je n'ai pas les paroles d'un spectacle euh, au bout de la langue, mais... I've just said I haven't got a, the words of a play at my tongue, but... Um, yeah. Oui, je parle français. That's amazing. And I... What is... is I mean, I just love languages. And I think if I sort of had... I just could pursue learning languages all the days of my life. I love speaking different languages. And so French was always my thing and theatre was my thing and music. But uh, I went down the French and theatre route. And so at university, because this was a combined honours degree, you know, we studied, well, I studied French literature. And then when you study French theatre, I mean, that was just exciting because what I realised was that my passion for kind of physical theatre and movement and um, that kind of... Uh, of of theatre has its roots in Commedia dell'arte, which I learned about in 17th century French literature classes. And then you kind of go, well, who's doing that now? And then I, you know, became an early follower of Theatre de Complicité, who are super famous now, but all of that sort of physical theatre stuff, which typically has a very French and indeed Italian kind of history. We haven't been, we historically were very good at the spoken word, you know, the Shakespeare, the way that we deliver texts. It was much more the tradition of how people were trained at drama school. And I just, discovered this other way of telling stories really and um so yeah a few years after university i went to paris to this renowned theater school l'école internationale de jacques lecoq and that was bonkers and that was all about physical theater mime movement uh, all in french did you do any mime well you see there's the cliche that you walk around with a sort of <laughs> tear drop painted on your face and a sort of wilting rose poking out of your pocket um we didn't do the thing that you're talking about we didn't learn how to walk downstairs and look like we're pressing against a pane of glass I mean I can do that Jamie you know for the for the bants as my kids would say but <laughs> it was not a big part of the curriculum what's I mean what's coming across to me very much from this is uh I mean I said earlier I just want to talk to normal people you're really not yeah you're not very normal you're you're very cultured very intelligent well-traveled um, you're a modern woman and what I want to know is in amongst all of that was was faith a part of of your life at uni was it part of your life growing up and if so mm. why why didn't you come to a point of saying in amongst all that I've read all that I've seen surely faith is to be dismissed oh well I did that <clears throat> um but well so I did that at 18 so the story is that um I was born into uh, a family of Christians. Mum and dad were uh, Christians and they had a fairly sort of bonkers experience. So kind of white working class Watford, um, they were going to a church which was just brilliant at kind of scooping up young teenagers uh, in that town who <coughs> just would go along to a kind of youth club on a Friday night. And then this is in the early 60s and late 50s. and then they experienced this what we talk about is the wave of the charismatic movement which happened in the UK in the 60s and so they were kind of versed in a theologically conservative school of thought accompanied by also uh, a practice of an appreciation of um, what we call manifestations of the Holy Spirit therefore um, people um, doing crazy things like speaking in tongues um, being baptized in the Holy Spirit so you might be praying for someone who might then sort of fall over and lie on the floor for a bit. Um, people having what 
words of knowledge, which are like prophecies and pictures. So there was all of that going on. And so I grew up knowing that that was all perfectly normal, which I know is very not normal. Um, and when we left Watford, however, we went to, to in Wimborne. And so the mum and dad moved to actually really pretty kind of high Anglican church because they thought that's where the teaching was great. So I kind of had, I've had a very, I had a very, very broad experience of different kinds of church and different expressions of Christianity throughout my childhood. And I, but a lot, you know, it's that classic thing. And so much of it was about doing, doing the right thing. And I'm not pretending I didn't, my faith was really important to me. And at school, I talked about it all the time. And I would invite mates to church and I wasn't ashamed of it. Um, And then I, um, it started to change when I was 16. And instead of doing A-levels at my school, because I wanted to do theatre, I moved away to the, to, the, to the local further education college. And um, my kind of music teacher was horrified and people couldn't believe that I was going to do this because typically, not you know, and wrongly, you know, the level of education was deemed um, sort of substandard at further education college. But there was this incredible theatre course there and it was like being part of a theatre company for two years. So I, but I moved there and that's where I experienced my first uh, I guess, culture shock in that I was goody two shoes, um, very, very innocent, very naive Christian girl. And suddenly I was in a college in a drama class with people who, <laughs> where I would sort of open my Tupperware box of sandwiches that my mum had made for my lunch. They lit, they, they went to the pub and had half a lager and a packet of crisps. And I was like, <gasps> what? No. 16. And <laughs> I began to feel and understand just how different I was and it became very difficult for me because that's when I began to be really teased for being a Christian, uh, really uh, just sidelined, nothing uh, sort of, I suppose, aggressive, but a very sinister and sort of gentle teasing, 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 chipping away, chipping away. And when you're feeling like you're on your own in this and, you know, and you don't feel you've got any kind of allies, I mean, you don't really survive that, I don't think, without making it. Well, I couldn't. I just got to a point where it was like, I can't, I can't beat them. I'm going to join them. Um, and I guess simultaneously, you know, uh, difficulties at home. My mum and dad struggled in their marriage. And I think that was a particularly challenging time for them, which obviously has a knock on effect. And while uh, I felt sort of on the one hand excluded from this group of students at college, at the same time, they were having a great time. And, and the comparison with youth group felt, I just didn't know who, where I belonged because I kind of wanted to have a great time. And I felt very, very divided, very divided. I couldn't be all of, I didn't know who I was, I guess you would say now. And so, can I ask, can uh, I ask you Brett, what the, um, when, when people would tease you, were they teasing you for, for having faith, thinking that there was a spiritual dimension to life or were they teasing you for being a Christian specifically? For being a Christian, I mean, you know, we were 16 and this was the 80s and being a Christian in the 80s, a young Christian in the 80s was flipping difficult compared to now. It's not easy, but at least now there's a dialogue around spirituality and meditation and even mindfulness. You know, the fact that you have a faith is not this freak thing to do and it was just really weird. So, um, I mean, you know, obviously I was seen as very, very square because I didn't go out clubbing. Uh, 
you know, you talk about sex. I mean, just don't, I just, you know, just teased um, on all of those fronts. The idea that someone would um, at 16 be a virgin was just laughable. And uh, so it was for being a Christian because also Christianity, you know, it's never been hit, never will be. That's not the point, but it was particularly square and uncool. Well, I'm actually, it's my personal campaign to make Christianity cool again. And uh, I think I'm, I think I'm being, I've been pretty successful so far. (laughs) And why Listen though, but because it's not meant to be cool. I mean, that's got its own problems. So, you know, no, don't do that. Do something else. Do this, do podcasts with people, talk to people, what you're doing, you know, we just need to make it Exactly. Uh, like you say, how is it woven into our daily lives? So yeah, so so at eighteen, I just was like, I can't actually do this anymore. And I had almost like a Sandra D moment. You remember in Greece where she shows where Olivia Newton John shows up yes. in her black slinky outfit and she's done the hair. I remember yep. going to a party and I'd fully done the red lippy. I had a packet of cigarettes and I showed up and the waves of shock of oh, have you seen Rachel and um everyone paid me loads of attention which I sort of quite liked but you know what's interesting about and, and then I went and then I got a boyfriend who was a DJ in Bournemouth and you know can you imagine my parents this was like what is going on uh I suddenly was on this kind of clubbing scene of Bournemouth so not you know <laughs> it's nothing to write home about going out with a 24 year old DJ um, who wasn't a Christian, I just threw it all in because I didn't know how to keep up. And the problem was that it's about, it was about keeping up with behavior. And I didn't know how to kind of ex- explore all those sides of culture and the things I love doing and believe that Jesus was okay with that. So now fast forward, you, you're, you're now the mother 52. of two lovely young ladies. How uh, Phoebe and Fleur, how old are they? Um, <clears throat> 16 and 18. So what do you say to them, bearing in mind that, like you say, your, your faith came under such challenge at the age they are now? Mm. Do you see that the same pressures on them? How do you steer them through? Yeah, oh, I, it's just, it does feel different um, now. Partly, I think, because, like I mentioned, I think there is more openness to the fact that spirituality if not faith spirituality is 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 okay and people are longing longing for dimensions to life that are not material um i one of them goes to a church where she's got a good crowd of mates and i think one of the things that was on our agenda if you like as parents was um that at any point if the church that we were going to didn't work for them you know, we live in London and you can take your pick um, and you you find where you can be at home spiritually. Yeah. So they both did that for a time. One of them has continued, continued with that. One of them's exploring it in different ways. I think the main thing, Jamie, is that they should know. I think my massive driver at the moment is that they must not know shame. Hmm. Because I think, because I, what do you mean by that? I don't, I'm not saying shame is wrong. I'm not saying being aware of making mistakes is wrong. I think in my twenties, I experienced just such, I lived with shame all over me because I had got it wrong. I did. I jumped, you know, I got off the Christian pathway 
all the things you're not going to do, I did. And I did find eventually grace as I crawled, limped my way back, if you like, into the Christian community to gauges. But I, I, I look back now and I realize that I was so hemmed in a lot of the time by uh, something which is ultimately a waste of time, I think, to Jesus, which I just felt awful about what I'd done and myself. Even, and it took me ages to accept that forgiveness really is forgiveness. And so I, um, my kids will make choices for their lives and indeed do make choices for their lives now. And I think I have as a very high priority. Do you, not, do you feel any shame? And when they, when one of them said to me, no, I said, well, that's, that's massive because it will just block you from understanding who God is. Uh, some people aren't going to like the fact that I've said it and maybe it's liberal, but I honestly, it's where I am. And, um, I think also they've seen, we're on pretty honest with them. They know in installments, my story, it's not helpful to dump the whole lot on them, but I think they also see us having a really, really brilliant time with our Christian mates. I mean, I have a brilliant time with my friends, but they also don't see us being kind of edited in who we are because of our faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what must be, I mean, I look at you and and Andy, uh, Grifter. I love, Mm -hmm. he's called Grifter, isn't he? Which, when I was a kid, was the coolest bike to have. Did Did he ever have a Grifter? No, he was a missionary kid. We should um, buy him a grifter for <laughs> Christmas. Um, I don't think I said that. No, I don't. No, I, don't I was never allowed. No, I was never allowed a chopper because yeah, exactly. Um, because my, my parents were uh, sure. My mum especially quite uh, risk averse. She thought I would uh, go through the handlebars. Do you remember? Because the low handlebars, the mm-hmm. low front mm-hmm. And Absolutely. actually, I never had a brand new bike growing up, and so I never had a grifter. Anyway, uh, you've got your own grifter, and. Um, Mm-hmm. Two of you, I just think, are fabulous mm-hmm. parents, and I think they. I've got my grifter. You've got your grifter. The two of you are such great parents, and and they see your faith for yourselves, but they also see what your faith creates within you as a sort of an, an impulse to do stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. And so they went with you in 2011 mm. when you moved to India. I mean, they did. Not many we take them with us. Do that kind of thing. You thought you'd take them with you? Yeah. Uh, I know. Oh, what can I say? It was bonkers. I mean, people do do it. You know, there are people who do it, but I know lots of people don't. What do you want to know about that? So what, I mean, <laughs> a, uh, a family of four with two mm-hmm. young girls. So the girls were what? Eight, and eight and 10. ten. Um, just get up and move to Chennai. How did that <laughs> come about? Grifter was working right. for international justice mission and Work and what just tell everyone what IJM is just for a second. All right, so uh, IJM International Justice Mission are an anti slavery organization and they work to seek justice for the poor against violence. And so they work in the tip of my tongue, I can't remember how many offices they have, that's really shameful around 18 to 20 offices now. In South Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, and um, partner offices in Europe. They've also just started working in Eastern Europe, in Romania. And they do different work in different territories. But the, 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 the line is to stop those who have power from working with violence to um, undermine, destroy, hurt, damage, enslave 
the poor. So to to and, and to restore justice systems, and so they work very much within existing justice systems. And most of the time, what you'll find is that there are laws in place to say that this stuff should not take place, and yet people operate with impunity. They carry on, and the justice systems are not strong enough or robust enough, or just they're not in place to to protect those who need protection. And so they partner with local government, national government, they partner with police to restore justice systems. They rescue people from oppressive situations. They then partner with individuals and communities in a two-year restoration program, and they work tirelessly to then bring perpetrators to, to convictions. And they're a US-based organization based in Washington, D.C. And we had heard about them uh, through friends of friends who'd gone off to Bangalore to do this work. And we had got to a point where, and so Andy wasn't working for them when we went to Chennai. He, we went to Chennai because he started working for them. Prior to that, he was, um, I always forget what his job title was, but I know it was really senior. <laughs> Global Leaf. Global legal director of Endemol, you know, the big, 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 big TV production company. They make Big Brother. Yep. He was a media lawyer and, and he, you know, in terms of media law, top of the tree in the UK. I mean, you know, not being funny, it just was. Works hard, that boy. And he and I, I guess there's partly both of us have got this sort of spirit of restlessness in us and adventure so he grew up as a missionary kid in an indigenous indian tribe in brazil i know it's another conversation <laughs> um so he's got he you know he likes he, he's just got travel in his bones and i had uh, through my 20s i lived on three different occasions in foreign countries well france twice spain once just cleared off for a year and did stuff like that moved away loved that sense of change loved that sense of being someone new and into a different culture different place Kind of itch, and, and I'm not, not someone who relishes the idea that where we live is where we can stay for the next 25 years. That, if anything, it induces a sort of panic in me. Um, so we were on a, we began to just feel like that while we were, you know, here we were, Christian family, all super safe, really privileged economically, uh, stable, all of the things which actually, you know, you get told in the West to work for. And let's be honest. No, I hadn't really experienced people in the church ever, ever saying to us, so guys, talk, talk to me about this, these choices that you make with your nice house and your nice job. So I'm not saying it's wrong, but I do think it's interesting that, I mean, we got to like our early 40s before, and it's on us, you know, we didn't do enough interrogation of the choices we were making. But it's the natural, um, it's the natural assumption, it's the default position of everyone, whether you have faith or not, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, yeah. and what you did was say, no, there's something, there's something in the gospel that is, that is sending us out, that is calling mm. us to, to live for others. So there you are. You lived there for six years? No, not even. Um, three. It was meant to be three. We only ended up doing two and a half because the Indian government wouldn't let, wouldn't let us in for, for nearly five months because we had a big visa problem. So the work was over three years and we lived there for two and a half. Okay, so I'm getting confused because Grifter still works with IJM. Well, he stopped working for them. We came back to England, uh, which was a different <laughs> choice. Um, I think I must be the world's worst interviewer. This is cl- this <laughs> is great. Do your research. Sorry. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter in the slightest. It is a blur. He didn't work for them when we came back. He had to leave IJM because there wasn't a job for him in, on our return, which was really 
really painful, but we've always stayed as advocates and big, big part of the IJM family. We loved the people that we worked with and oh, did this work with. And then in October last year, um, due to some restructuring, a role came up, which Andy applied for, and it's based in London. And so he's, he's doing that. Um, so what was after the, the work? After, uh, from after here. the uh, two and a half years that you were in, mm. in you, um, you came back. What was the, what, did you get reverse culture shock? You hear about this? Yes, you? hugely, hugely. And I sort of read about it and, and you can't imagine it. Oh, it was uh, a very difficult first year. I think I found it, no, I don't know. I think we all found it difficult. Um, when I think about it, I suppose the difficulty with reverse culture shock is that you, people see you, so people see you in the street and, and you're back and you don't look any different and, and, and so many things have not changed. But what's going on in you, in me, you know, it's this enormous story that we had lived. And it doesn't mean it's enormous because we did this great work of justice. Anyone who's lived anywhere else and come back, you'll know this. You have a story inside you. And if people don't ask you to tell it, you are kind of locked in um, with this huge amount of emotion and experience and life that no one seems to know about, even really good friends. I mean, we find it hard. We don't know how to have those conversations, I think, very well. And so, you know, I was just in so much trouble because it had been such an extraordinary and meaningful experience. And you can't keep talking about it because people get really bored. They want to move on. They know that you went to India. Yeah, I know. And so we, uh, I felt very, very stifled. I felt that some of the beautiful things that we'd learnt from that culture, um, you know, made Western culture pretty grim. And, and so you kind of don't want to be here. But then you realise that when you're saying that, you're criticising other people's lives. So I got into all sorts of trouble and I think I upset people and I hurt people and I said the wrong thing. And then... In the end, I just went to see a counsellor because I thought, I need to be able to talk about this and I need someone not to answer back <laughs> or get bored because <laughs> I'm paying them. Um, so I think we found it difficult um, at the same... And, and the girls, I mean, you know, that stuff's challenging, but it's not a reason not to do it. I think we... But, but of, of course, what's so brilliant about that is that we as a four people in this household, we knew what we'd lived. And then we do have other people, of course, within the organisation who knew and then we would reach out to them and say, ah, no one understands. They're like, it's okay, we know. So, yeah, it was difficult coming back for sure. But you've all of that you love you loved about that, helping people, making a difference, seeing that actually the Christian gospel it causes us to mm. bring transformation in the world that we are the mm. we are the heart we are the feet we are the hands of christ in the world as it were um that same impulse 2017 bubbled up in you to start hern hill welcomes refugees yes i think what had happened um in in going before india is that we realized that we felt very apathetic and bored and, you know, it's like, hang on, if we believe this stuff is true, then we need to, I mean, it's got to make much more difference, hasn't it? It's got, you know, we, we've got to bring it front and centre. And, uh, and yeah, and, and justice suddenly became, I don't know, I think it might be our age, I don't know how you found it, but there's something about, I, I was taught so much growing up about, you know, helping people to meet Jesus and evangelism and being good and, Sure, you know, giving your money away and all that sort of stuff. But 
this message of justice, I'm just so delighted that it's heart and centre of, of so much more of our faith now. But, I, you know, to my shame, to our absolute shame, we kind of missed it for decades. So the justice piece then was, oh, you know, I think also that just, I want life to be meaningful. I've got, one of my greatest fears is that life will be mediocre. And I say that, I know that I say, you can only say that when you are in a position of privilege. So I don't hear me wrong on that one. But um, I think, you know, we have a capacity in the West and if you're sort of stable um, that you can make yourself a really, really mediocre life. And I, I just don't want that. So India was not mediocre. And then in coming, I suppose this seed of the seeking justice was, was alive then in me. And um, yes, I'd heard about friends down in Devon who um, just one day said to me, oh yeah, we're doing that, you know, that scheme you can do to help to resettle a refugee family. So this is, you know, around 2015, 16, when the Middle East and Syrian crisis is on our headlines, news you know, everywhere. It's, yeah. it's the top news item. And, um, and, and the country was kind of going, what do we do? What do we do? And I had gone out to Calais um, to the refugee camp there called The Jungle. And I'd gone out there with a couple of other uh, theatre maker and musician friends and, um, to run a couple of sessions in the theatre that a couple of English playwrights had set up there called um, Good Chance Theatre. And they were welcoming artists and practitioners to come over and run workshops. So I'd done that and I, for a weekend and I hung out in this refugee camp and you know, drunk mint tea with beautiful Syrian people welcoming us in and just seen it up close. And um, upon hearing about this scheme where we could actually do something, you know, be the change, I just thought, well, we've got to do that. So I'm not going to say to you, Jamie, that I had within me a calling to refugees, a calling to do something about this crisis. It was actually a very unemotional and pragmatic decision, completely unlike the feelings I'd had around um, international justice mission and that work of anti-slavery. It was, here's the scheme. My mates have done it. It's possible. I live in the kind of neighborhood where I believe there's people who are going to jump on board with this. And the scheme is called community sponsorship. And if, can I tell, say a little bit about the scheme? Yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a government initiated scheme borrowed from the Canadians who've been doing it brilliantly for decades, whereby a group of people can come together and often it is a faith community. So mosques, synagogues, churches now moving into, well, we were just a group of neighbors. Um, it's even a sports club that are doing it now. Schools are taking it on whereby a group of people come together, submit an application form to say, we have the people and we've raised a bit of money and we have found a property that can be rented out at housing benefit rates. And we are willing to and ready to welcome a refugee family into our community and we will support them and in integration we will help their kids find schools we will help the adults uh, have english lessons ultimately find work and um and you um, you submit an application to the home office by your local authority they accept and then the unhcr match the community group with a family who are on their most vulnerable list and the process takes it took us a year and I think it takes a bit less now because there's a lot more in place. And what was interesting about that was that it came at a time where I think I'd been on a, I just was sensing that trying to work out the practice of my faith and this work of justice through church, through the institution of the church, wasn't working. Um, I, my, our church was in a, uh, at what's called an interregnum. So we were 
between vicars at that time. And so I came to them saying, I want to do this. And for completely understandable reasons, they just, well, we can't take this kind of thing on at this point because we don't, you know, we're waiting to appoint a new vicar. And that plus a few other kind of things I'd been sensing uh, about frustration, I suppose, with, with operating within an institution was like, I, I found that message very, very painful from the church. Um, but once I'd let my emotions settle, I thought, well, of course, this is not something to do through the church. This is something to do with my neighbours. A couple of them happened to go to church. That's not the point. And so we held an evening and we said to people, come along and hear about this. 50 people came, 20 people signed up to be part of the community. Hernhill Welcomes Refugees was formed. And um, a year later, we welcomed at the airport an Iraqi woman and her three children who live here now. Now, let's, let's backtrack because you've been involved with Greenbelt for many years, the Christian festival, music festival, arts festival that happens every... Sadly, not happening this summer, of course. Yeah. But uh, when did you start being involved with Greenbelt? Because that justice and ha- has always been just a huge... Social justice has always been a huge part of, of the calling to, to yeah. Greenbelt, hasn't it? Indeed. Yeah, I mean, involved in, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a passionate greenbelter. Um, you know, I don't have any kind of leadership in that space, but I, so <laughs> like a lot of us, I went in the 80s uh, when Cliff Richard headlined and Peter Powell did his Radio One Road show. Most people listen to this and like, what is she on about? Um, and 30,000 people would go because this was, I mean, it's the longest running festival in the UK. It would have been 47 this year. And if you think now to the number of festivals that our kids are able to choose from, you know, back in the day, it was Greenbelt and Glastonbury pretty much. And so, and and in terms of youth groups, Christian youth groups, like it was the date in the calendar. Yeah. Pre-Soul Survivor and all of that stuff. And so it felt like every youth group in the country went. And so I went a few times then. And then I, so then I kind of stopped being a Christian, you know, for a bit. Uh, 18 to 24 as I've mentioned and then after that in kind of I think Greenbelt went through its own journey of trying to rework who it was and and, and I think there were you know it fell out a little bit with the evangelical church uh, or the evangelical church fell out with it um, I wasn't really around for all that but I know it was difficult went once in the 90s and I was really shocked at how small it was and how different it was and so it just wasn't where I was at and then we started going again when our kids were tiny really bonkers thing to do let's go for a weekend camping where there are no showers or fridges or anything um but we have always had great friends who've gone through and through all of the years and all of the seasons of Greenbelt. and um so for the last I guess 17 years since we've been going with the kids and we I mean I just feel that I feel deeply deeply at home there and you're right Greenbelt have never stopped talking about justice and I think a lot of people maybe have missed that about it, but it's always been at the forefront. And in fact, we first heard really to talk to anyone about international justice mission at Greenbelt because there was a stand, you know, in the marquee with all the stands and we went and chatted to someone and said, hi, we kind of interested in this. Um, it's a magnificent space for the seeker, for those who don't feel like they fit. Um, it is beautifully open. Um, and I mean that to people of LGBTQ community, you can be from any walk of faith, no faith, you can be lost, you can be hungry, you can be fine, you can be sorted. Um, 
but as the strapline for Greenbelt says, you know, there's some, it's somewhere to believe in. And there's so much to do with the arts there, isn't there? So much music and theatre. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and, I, obviously and I think that's, that's, that's a huge part of who you are still to this day. You're not just exactly. out helping people the whole time. I mean, you help in different ways and you are, how would you describe you? A freelance theatre maker. How about that? Yeah. 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 Did so I, I hit I, the nail on the head with that? So you're you're theatre in what in schools in mm-hmm. uh, with co- with corporates as well. You do all kinds of events. Yeah. So not necessarily events. Um, it's more making theatre with in, in schools. It's making theatre with with kids, running workshops, facilitating workshops. In India, I did some work with women in a pavement dwelling community. Some work with girls rescued from sex trafficking, and of course, the power of what we call participatory theatre is. Um, is the process. We're not there to kind of make a show. Uh, neither is it drama therapy. That is not my skill set. It's not my training. It's not what I do. Um, it's how do we make a space where people can tell their story or be who they are, uh, breathe, <laughs> take a step back and, and tap into something deep within themselves, which of course is what the arts allows us to do. Uh, and with a corporate, it's how do you bring the metaphor and the skill and the technique of theatre into into the workplace? Um, and yeah, it's it's wonderful work to be involved in. And I I just see so much crossover when I'm in a theatre workshop to sometimes when I'm in a kind of a spiritual space as well. I mean, how you facilitate those spaces really matters to me. Mm-hmm. How you make people feel safe and how you make people feel like they can authentically be who they are and open up and find something, something, I don't know, just find something. I think maybe, yeah, it's more about making space for people to be who they are, tell a story. And, and Greenbelt, of course, that's right. You can be leaping around like a nutter to some brilliant music at Greenbelt or lying down in the grass, listening to some ambient sounds and in a place of worship or contemplation uh, you know, there's, there are different offerings and different practices and silent prayer and a bit of yoga and, and a pub. Um, and it's, you know, it is that beautiful, I suppose, integration that one can be all of oneself there. And I suppose tracking back to kind of why I had to part company with the church when I was 18 was just that I can't be all of who I am. Um, and I have, you know, I have had, of course, churches, experiences of church, particularly in my late 20s, when that, ult- that absolutely was possible. But I think that Greenbelt really makes that very possible for people. So you, um, I watched a brilliant sermon of, of you yesterday um, uh-huh. from your church online, obviously a lockdown sermon. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got to be really careful these days. Actually, before I go on, to just a shameless plug for how someone can, as it were, book you for... <laughs> go on why not book me for what well i don't know to come oh, okay. and be a freelance theater maker yeah okay. wonderful i suppose um twitter at ray r-a-e underscore griffiths okay there you go well hundreds of people are going to book you now if if and if for nothing else they're going to book you to to come and preach because honestly you were so good uh, i must admit i was um the only trouble with doing a zoom thing have you noticed every you're welcoming people into your home we're not doing this on video we're just on audio but mm. um, people looking around your house as, yeah. as you're I, I was very guilty of being transfixed by the antique door behind you 
It looked yeah, like a little bit of Rajasthani from, furniture. It looked like something from <laughs> Tomb Raider. I wanted to go through it into <laughs> another world. Do you know, you're not the first person to say that. Someone, we do a Zoom uh, after church coffee at our church and someone said, where does that door go? And I said, <laughs> I'm really sorry. It is a cupboard. Um, but yeah, what's interesting but is that there is a, there's, there, there's something here for us. And, and with this, I think we, we've probably got to draw to a close. But what you were saying, you, you were preaching about um, contemplative prayer, about silence. I love the on me now and quote that you use, mm. violence is the furnace of transformation. Mm-hmm. And this idea that as we worship, as we pray, we are entering in, might mm. I say, through a beautiful doorway into, <laughs> um, into the presence of God. And, and it's then that we understand not just more of what, who God is, but who we are. Yes. Yeah, it is something which I... Uh, I'm pretty late to the party on this one. I mean, obviously, contemplative prayer has been going on for centuries and centuries. And I'm really grateful to... Actually, IJM really introduced me and Andy to this because one of their brilliant lines is that God does his miraculous work of transformation through miraculously transformed people. Mm. It's fabulous, isn't it? And so the, the game plan at IJM is that the people who work for them get miraculously transformed and out of that you do the work and so just was introduced to great books I've got um, a dear friend um, I'm going to name him because he's taught me so much Johnny Certin who has been talking to me for ages about this stuff and I suppose all it is it's just not uh, within the evangelical tradition and that's all right but more and more we're seeing people who would not consider themselves contemplative saying there is something in this that is actually saving my life. Uh, It might be, it might be to do with middle age. You know, I think a lot of us at our stage in life are finding it. That's all right to do. I'll let Um, you know when we get there. (laughs) Come on in. The water's warm. Um, The, it's something to do with feeling that, all the things that we believe, it's not that they're not true. I think it's something about the expression of them, often through noise, <laughs> sound, singing, uh, talking, all of which you know I adore. I'm a full-on extrovert, so I'm good with all that. But at some point, we actually can negate the work that needs to be done in us if we're always singing, talking, talking, singing. Mm. And I mean that even in praying, like with words. So uh, we are not undermining the powerful experience of God that we have in those practices. I'm really not. Um, what I am saying is that my personal journey of discovery at the minute is one where if I want to grow, is it even great? Let's use transformed. If I want to be transformed, then yeah, it's face to face with God. And that's, can happen in all sorts of spaces. Uh, it doesn't have to be in nature. I live in Southeast London. And actually, you know, we talk about entering the presence and can, but I think as I develop it more, it, it's just, well, I always am. I'm always, we're always in the presence of God. Um, but there's something about the act of choosing to be still before God. And I say be still, but you can walk and run uh, as well. You know, you can be active. You can maybe do your gardening or tinkering with a bit of bread making like everyone is or washing up. Uh, everyday tasks and we can find that presence. And I find 
for me, and you'll understand this, but when you've got a, when you've got a performance background or a training and that industry, um, that alluring industry, which is one where you're only as good as your last job and there are always people who are further down the line than you, you know, that stuff is so toxic. And mm. I've had to do a lot of work on that recently and just to go, if I'm honest, I'm probably, you know, I've still been hankering after a thing, a thing I cannot name. And so recently through contemplation, I've gone, I've had to address that and say, if I believe the things I believe, if I believe I'm wholly valued and a child of God and I have a purpose, um, let's just address that hankering after the something else. What is that? And then the glorious thing is, and I'm not there yet, Jamie, but in the moments that I attain it, uh, is that it doesn't matter. Like mm. it just doesn't matter. And then also as someone who's wrestled with church and got very cross with church over the years and complained about this, you know, you get into the presence and you, it just doesn't matter. If that's how people want to do it, that, that's fine. You know, I don't need to kind of bash it over the head. So there is something really powerful um, about it. And I think more and more people are desperate for it. It's been so good to talk to you today, Rachel. Rach, Ray. <laughs> Ray I have loved underscore it. Griffiths at Ray Twitter. What's it? Thank you. Ray um, underscore Griffiths. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us today. And um, God bless you as you step into the day. You've done your run. You can now go and have your muesli. Thank you, Jamie. I've, I've loved, loved talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Faith with Hate. See you again soon. Much love. <laughs>